Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I'll be reading Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Father, help me this morning to say what Paul meant in its context, its immediate context, its larger context. Help us understand the vehicle of these words that he used on how we are to go through our daily lives here in our sojourn on earth. That foundationally, Father, means may these words cause our hearts to worship, to rejoice, to be deeply thankful for such a great hope to which you have called us. And may that be the power in which we deal with each other and family and friends and workmates and colleagues and this world in which you have sent us to the glory of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> what would you choose if you're presented with the opportunity to preserve the unity of the spirit of your culture by going along with the vast majority in saying, Caesar is Lord, not Jesus. Are you to seek unity? Or are you to stand for the truth? Or it's Thanksgiving and a family member looks at you and says, Okay, you're a Christian. Just let me ask you. So, you really believe that if I don't become a Christian like you and believe in Jesus that one day I am going to be condemned by God that I'm going to hell gosh I hope you don't believe that because that offends me that hurts my feelings do you at that moment seek for the unity of good feelings the lack of tension above the truth that Christ is the only propitiation for sins. Or, hopefully, you're a loving person, not just to Christians, but to non-Christians and non-Christian family members and people in your community or acquaintances or friends. And God brings into your life gay people and it comes to the place where they say, we are going to get so-called married. And you get an invitation to celebrate their quote-unquote marriage. 
people you love. Do you seek peace there? Do you seek to have no tension or no hurt feelings and thus go ahead and attend the celebration and know in your heart, well, I don't really agree with it? Or do you refuse to publicly endorse what God condemns? And you say to the loved ones, next month though, We really want you two to come over to the house for dinner. We'll play cards and hang out and talk about whatever. Or say in the South Bay, a community, a couple community, religious, clergy, leaders get together and they say, we want to have a unifying Christian witness and therefore we're calling all Roman Catholic clergy and we're calling Baptist and we're calling... Unitarians, and we're calling non-Trinity believing oneness Pentecostals, and we're going to have a keynote speaker, Joel Osteen, and we're going to say we are all unified as Christians here. What do you do? Do you go because you're called to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Now, if you were here last week, those questions are coming from the first part of our passage that we dealt with last week, verses 1 to 3. And so, briefly, what we saw last week is that we believers in Christ are called to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling. Look at verse 1. Of Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And we saw that the way you go about doing that is verse 3. Being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peaceful relations with each other. And therefore, to ignore striving for unity and peace between each other in the body of Christ would be to be living or walking in an unworthy manner to the Gospel of Jesus. That's what he says in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we saw last week that the way to go about that is verse 2. By walking with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. But Paul didn't stop. Because now, in this context, comes verses 4 through 6. Which, what they are doing there, is that they are the ground. They're the foundation of verses 1 to 3. The unity of the Spirit that we are to preserve is foundationally verses 4 to 6. There is one body. 
and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. Who is over all, through all, and in all. Let me just say the obvious. What we just read there are a bunch of truth statements. They're propositions. Many of you don't know this, but over the last number of decades within Christianity and Christian academics, there's been this big movement to say, we've got to get away from propositional truth. You know, it's about a journey we're all on. We've got to get into narrative theology and how your life fits into it. But this idea of making statements about truth that must be held to, well, that, that, that's got to go. But, but these truth statements right here in Ephesians 4, they clearly mean, therefore, that we are not to understand calls Paul for humility, for unity, and for peace-seeking in a way that says, well, let's not let truth get in the way of unity. Can't say that. Let's not let foundational doctrines get in the way. No, that would be a misreading of this context of what Paul is saying. That is at the core of what the postmodern, relativistic, so-called evangelical church movement called the emerging church or the emergent church about ten years ago, most of it was all about. The underlying philosophy was, hey, let's just get along. Look, you name Jesus, I name Jesus, that's it. That's our common bond. Other than that, we don't believe in absolute truths. Or even if we did, none of us could really know whether we know what is absolutely true. And so, let's reinvent Christianity for the 21st century. Thank goodness you don't hear much about that movement anymore. And neither does this passage of preserving the unity of the Spirit mean that the Great Reformation in the 1500s was wrong or in itself sinful because those within the church rose up and said, wait a minute, we're going to challenge this doctrine of authority that puts church tradition on the exact same level as Scripture, but Scripture alone. And we challenge the core of how you're understanding the Gospel, saying it is by faith and grace plus works. Paul taught we are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone apart from works. They weren't sinful for causing disunity. And the more and more in our day that you hear 
cries for unity that, that are totally disassociated from truth, then you can know that that is not the unity of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul is referring to here in this passage. And the more and more Christian people, churches from denominations, or people from denominations break away from those churches, places, organizations, denominations, because those churches, organizations, organizations and denominations are affirming as valid, quote-unquote, same-sex marriage, those persons are not sinning. They are striving to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So in our passage here, Paul clearly does not mean maintain unity and peace by not holding to biblical doctrine and truth and living standards. doesn't mean it in the context. And not only that, <laughs> Paul certainly did not model that in his life. See, when he heard that in the local church of Corinth, that there are a bunch of Christians that think they're on the right path by saying, we're just going to love our brother Steve who is living in fornication or adultery because she is a married woman. But you know what? What we're going to do is keep you know, loving him and kind of, you know, he probably shouldn't do that, but we're going to really ignore his sin and we're going to nice him to death. After all, Steve professes faith in Jesus still, like we do. And it would be disunifying and mean-spirited if we confronted Him and excommunicated Him from the church because of His refusal to repent. So we're going to go about loving that way. Well, Paul the man who also wrote Ephesians, the man of the unity of the Spirit, responded to that church this way. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. You're not doing anything about it. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather cry Mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And the peace and unity seeking Apostle Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my last letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would have to go out of the world. I'm not talking about unbelievers. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of Christian if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not 
even to eat with such a one. Paul, the man of unity. In 1 Corinthians 6, he writes to Timothy, Teach and urge these things that I just wrote. In Timothy, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Paul, seek the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. That can cause tension. Okay. Look. The flow of what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 is pursue the unity of the Spirit by dealing with each other in humility, in gentleness, and in patience. And all of that is founded on and based on verses 4 to 6. Be unified. That is, one-ified. Be one. Unicycle, one wheel. Okay. Be unified. And now he lists off six times the word. There's one. There's one. There's one. Be unified. Be one. Why? Because there is one body. And there is one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Our unity, Paul is saying, is around truth. The truth of the Gospel and all that it means. And that is, if you just look down, just keep reading... That's what he goes on to clearly say again in verses 13 to 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. He means there the doctrine. The Christian body of knowledge. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning. By craftiness in deceitful schemes. So, true humility, true love and peace it is not vagueness or uncertainty or doubt. True humility, seeking true unity and true peace is an attitude of, I'm not the center. Truth outside of me is the center. My happy thoughts on how I ought to live my life is not the center. God's Word is my command. I don't tell God how many paths there are to Him. 
He tells me. We don't define the unity of the Spirit. God defines the unity of the Spirit. And that's what verses 4 to 6 are doing. There is only one God. But Pastor Joe, I don't believe that. Okay? You and I have no grounds for unity of the Spirit. There's only one Lord, the man, Jesus Christ, of heaven and of earth. I don't believe that. We have no unity then. There's only one Spirit, one Holy Spirit, poured out from the one Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. God is Trinity. But I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe that God is Trinity. Then we don't have a foundation for unity. Make any sense? Talking to you. Alright, good. Alright, so let's then look then at verses 4 to 6 more carefully and closely. What is he unfolding here? Remember now, as, as we pick up here, Paul has just exhorted his readers, the, the churches, to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, why does Paul want them to maintain the unity of the Spirit? His answer is, because there is only one Spirit creating one body, unified. That's his argument. The body of Christ, that's it, is the church. It's made up of Jews, Paul has said, and non-Jews who have come alive supernaturally to faith in Jesus. So when he says there is one body, it's synonymous for Paul. I mean, one church. Just, just a taste throughout what he says in Ephesians. And he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Or he says, and so that he might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. Or he says, for we are members one of another, and Christ is the head of the church, the body, and he is himself. It's the body's Savior. So Paul says, it is by one Holy Spirit that we are put into one body. Now, for Paul, each congregation is a local manifestation of that spiritual body. Not a part of it. When he speaks to them, he says, You are the body. So the church in Corinth is the body of Christ. 
in Corinth. The church in Ephesus is the body of Christ. First Baptist down the street is the body of Christ in local expression. And so when he writes to the local church, like the church in the locality called Corinth, he says to them in chapter 12, verse 27 of 1 Corinthians, Now you are not part of, but you are the body of Christ. And individually members of it. There's only one body. Universal and all kinds of local expressions of that one body. And all of us who are part of the body of Christ. We know the experience as a born again person what it is to run into another person born of the same one Spirit who don't go to the local church we go to. Who don't belong to the same denomination. And we have gloriously wonderful grounds of unity. We're alive to Christ. One body created by one Spirit. There is one body and one Spirit. And then he says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. See, he is defining clearly when he says one body, those who belong to it, one spirit who puts them into it, he says, this is who you are. You've been called. Remember verse 1 last week, the emphasis on called. Walk worthily of the calling with which you have been supernaturally called to faith, which means you have hope. What hope? The hope of the gospel. Believers have been called out of death into life to taste, to see, and thus to grab hold of, to grasp, and to believe what they have been called from. Guilt is put away. I'm forgiven. But not only that, what they're called to. The future. The future hope. In Colossians, he says it this way in chapter 1. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And Paul said back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, so that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you. Or in Colossians 3, when Christ who is your life appears in His second coming, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That's the hope. It is the expectation of those who belong to Jesus. He says, you were called to this hope. And every born again person has this hope as the driving force that animates them because the Holy Spirit has come into them and thus placed that hope of the Gospel in their heart.
It's that underlying sense of future expectation that is the unifying factor of the body of Christ that motivates our repentance, that motivates our, I need to walk in humility with you, that motivates, I want to seek peace with my brothers and sisters. It motivates all of our pursuing of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because foundationally, the center of our longing, we agree with chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us. Not just me. Toward us in Christ Jesus. There's only one body one Spirit who has called you to one living hope. And then verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Yeah. One Lord. In the Old Testament, you know, God, in the beginning, God Created God Elohim, the word for God, created. This one God revealed His personal name in the law to Moses, and it's used thousands of times in the Hebrew Scripture. The four letters, or, okay? or some of us like to put in the vowels where the Jews refuse to pronounce it, so I'll just go with Yahweh. Or in your English translations, when the word Lord is capitalized, it's referring to the Hebrew word Yahweh as opposed to the Hebrew word Adonai, which is a different word. It just means Lord, like ruler, or something like that. But his personal name is Yahweh. Now, almost 200 years before Jesus was born, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, was translated into Greek. And when Yahweh appears in all those thousands of times, it is translated with the Greek word kurios, meaning Lord. When He says here, there's only one Lord. He's referring to Jesus who is Yahweh, the God. Who do I send? Sent me. Moses says, I am sent you. It's a play on the letters, the to be verb of I am. Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is that Lord by virtue of His eternal being and His becoming human and living and suffering and dying and rising from the dead. This is what is so stunning about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You either look with me or listen carefully because here's how Paul unfolds that in Philippians 2, verses 6-11. to 
referring to Jesus, a human being, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count His equality with God as a thing to be held on to and not become human. That's what He means. Did not regard His equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead He made Himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the most humiliating death of all, the death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name. Just stop for a minute. It's not the name Yeshua. Jesus. God bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Lord, Kuria. To the glory of God the Father. This was central doctrine to the early church. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8.6, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. One Lord who is. Jesus Christ, which leads to there's only one faith. By faith here, he doesn't mean my act of believing here. He means one body of truth. It's true. One clear gospel doctrine. There is only one faith. It's what he preaches about who God is and that there was a fall into sin and that there's redemption through Jesus Christ, the Lord, and through Him only. When he says there's only one faith, he means the way Jude used it when he wrote, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Or he means it the way he will use it eight verses later in Ephesians. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. The knowledge the Son of God. There's only one Lord. There's only one 
faith. And therefore, there's only one entry. Baptism. One baptism. Why? Because there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, in whom believers are united. And Paul's made clear how we are united really with Him. He says, because we have been spiritually raised up with Him and seated with Him in the spiritual realm. That's why we are in Him and He is in us. And so those persons are baptized into the one body of Christ. So, so Paul, writing to Galatians, to the Galatians, says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Or in 1 Corinthians 12, he writes, For just as the body is one, and it has many members, and all the members of the body, though they're many, they are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, okay, there's spirit baptism and... and there's water baptism. Yeah. Paul on Damascus Road. His life is changed. And he gets into Damascus and he's still blind. And he tells Ananias, I want you to go over here and do this to his eyes. And, and, then, and he's going to baptize him in water. Okay. Was Paul not already baptized into the Spirit? body of Christ by the Spirit? Yes, he absolutely was. Therefore, he's water baptized. Now, when he says there's one baptism, it's just in the first century, Paul's not making a distinction between water baptism where others, human beings, the church, Jesus' precious bride to whom he gave authority... Okay. to receive into their membership and to exclude from their membership. He gave them, he's not making a distinction between spirit baptism or water baptism because th that idea was such an anomaly if it ever happened in the first century. It's just that clearly one's going to physically and manifestly follow the spiritual. There's one baptism. And verse 6. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, what does He mean? He could mean two different things. 
He could mean He is the Father of all, referring to human beings, which in this case would mean, therefore, Christians. He's the Father of all Christians. He's over all of them, through them, and in them. Or He could mean not human beings or Christians, but He could just mean things. Now the reason is, you see the word all, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all, four times. The Greek word, pontone, it could be either masculine or neuter. It's exact same spelling. And so you're left to context. And both could work in the context. So, if he meant masculine, that the gender, okay, there's gender in Greek, okay? If the gender of the pronoun is masculine, then he would mean Christians. And, and he wouldn't be meaning all things there. And he would be saying that God is over, he's utterly sovereign over and through and in every member of the body of Christ. And he works over and through and dwells in every one of them. But, if he meant it to be understood in the neuter gender, now let me just tell you, I'm, I'm about 70% thinking it's this latter one, neuter meaning all things. Okay? And 30% the other way. But if it's neuter, then, then, then Paul would mean he, there is one God and Father over all things. And he's already used it that way with the word Father back in chapter 3 when he said, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, and if you go back to that sermon, you'll see how I argue right there. He, he means he's like, he's God sovereign over all things and every human being and every plan, etc. Not specifically like my father because I'm a Christian. So if he means all things, then what Paul is saying here is that God is supremely transcendent and over, sovereignly over everything. And He works in His created universe. He works through it. He works in it over all things that have been made. And thus, in the context of Ephesians, by His so doing, He is fulfilling sovereignly His ultimate purpose of unifying all things in Christ. Which Paul already clearly said he's about in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Who according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven, things on earth. 
And as he goes about this, this is what Ephesians is all about, is that God sends His Son to save the church. A bride prepared for Him. That's for whom He died. And now the Gospel comes out. And as the Gospel goes out, people come alive to Christ. And they gather in communities. And Paul says, God's eternal plan from before He ever created, it hasn't totally consummated itself, yet it will one day. There's this stage right now in this present evil world where God is working through the unifying of the church as a sign and a light to everything. That everything will be unified one day. I get that from chapter 3 when he says this. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery which has been hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the spiritual realm, to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. All of this was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is one body. There is one Spirit, just as All of you who are in Christ have been called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all things. He was over all things, and He's through all things, and He is in all things. Everything is under His control, and He will do it. So what does this mean for us today? Well, let me say it this way then. We as as believers, right now, it's 2016, as we are to continually go about pursuing the unity of the Spirit and peaceful relations of love and humility and patience with one another. Let's keep going, keep going, keep going. But we need to know right now more than ever that this true Christianity, verses 4-6, to the foundation of our pursuit of unity, is not a popular stance in our American culture today and it will probably continue to get worse it is not a politically correct position to hold that there is only one lord jesus christ in all the universe who will himself judge every human being one day not popular. And that that one, and only that one Lord, is the one God who created all things and Himself 
became a human being. Grew up. Lived in sinless righteousness. And willingly suffered and laid down his life to a brutal death to absorb the wrath of God against sinners. And was raised from human mortality, conquering it, unto human immortality forever. And this happened about 2,000 years ago. We're almost there in year 33. to be 2,000 years in 2033. And it happened right outside Jerusalem and there were numerous eyewitnesses to these things. There's only one way. There's only one way to truly be acceptable to God and not condemned in one's sin. There's only, if I could say it this way, one true religion. And its message is coming to a personal knowledge of Jesus and trusting Him and Him alone for His work for your salvation is the only way to escape the judgment that is to come. See, this is not a popular message in the climate of our culture today. If you hold to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, you will be labeled as arrogant. You'll be labeled as unloving, as closed-minded, and as intolerant. But that's okay. Because the greatest teacher ever said to his disciples one day, if they hated me, they will hate you also. If you hold to Biblical church entrance through faith and baptism. And you hold to biblical church discipline through excommunication of members who are living in unrepentant patterns as unbelievers. Then many, many, quote unquote, Christians, many, many who have been eating at the table of popular evangelicalism's watered-down gospel that preaches you can be saved in Jesus by professing Him as your Savior, as your Lord, ask Him into your heart without any evidence. You don't need any evidence that you love His body. You can go on in life and never commit to being a member at any church or accountable to others and to whom you're responsible for brothers and sisters because you believe in Jesus. But let me just say, yes, we live in this kind of a culture from the outside and somewhat within the church world. Be of good cheer, believer. Simply because of this. If verses 4 to 6 are true, if the gospel is true, 
If it's true that faith in Christ alone saves, but that faith itself is not alone, but always has evidence, and it evidences itself through walking worthily of the gospel, through ongoing repentance and trust, in worship and fellowship with Christ's body, in humility and in patience and in long-suffering, if it's true, then no matter what the world says, you can know you're not arrogant for holding to it. You can know you're not unloving for holding to it. But you can know that because of God's grace, you are able to humbly submit to ultimate reality. And the consummation of that hope to which you have been called will come. And you will be vindicated on that day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're in such need to follow Your Son, the most loving human being who ever walked this earth. Let us follow Him in holding the tension between truth Rebuke, loving, painful words, and tenderness towards children or towards Peter, knowing when you return, strengthen your disciples in eating with him because he's his. Saying, Peter, feed my sheep. Father, help us follow Him by holding to truth, gospel truth, ultimate realities revealed in Scripture with a heart that loves, cries, and mourns over the lostness of family members and loved ones. Let us be this light, Father, to the glory of Jesus. Amen.